Chapter 2 Bridie and Jack As soon as the sharp sound of her father's feet had died away, Bridie Rooney slipped on her coat and hat, called goodbye, and stepped out into the yard. There in the darkness she powdered her face, discreetly, away from her mother's disapproval. She could hear her sisters giggling in the doorway behind her. Will you get in? she said sharply. There's nothing to laugh at out here. They scurried back into the kitchen. Bridie waited a moment for the sound of her mother coming, dabbed her powder puff along her nose, and snapped her compact shut. She ran down the street to the main road, glancing round to make sure there was no sign of her father, and then across to the tram stop. As she stepped onto the tram, she was aware of curious eyes on her, and she blushed self-consciously. She was used to being looked at, something of a beauty. Even her mother acknowledged that. She had strong Irish features and thick dark hair and blue eyes. She drew many covetous glances, whether she sought them or not. She dressed well too. All the money that was left over from paying her mother for her keep went on clothes, and tonight she was wearing a new winter coat that hung like a cape from her shoulders, and a little blue helmet hat with a parrot embroidered on the side. You'd think she was one of the rich girls instead of being a cobbler's daughter. They were proud of her, her parents, though they'd never have admitted it, even to the parish priest in the confessional. She nodded and smiled her way down the tram, embarrassed by the glances cast at her, wishing she'd worn her plain grey hat. When the conductor came for her fare, she smiled at him modestly. Who's this? he asked loudly. Oh, King Cole? There was a shout of laughter from the passengers, and Bridie turned away uncomfortable, trying to catch her reflection in the window of the tram. She opened her bag, felt around for her little mother-of-pearl hand mirror, and slid it onto her knee. A flame of disbelief burned across her neck. She picked up the mirror to catch full view of her face, her cheeks with two black rings her nose and her chin as black as a seaside minstrel's. She fumbled wildly in her bag again for a handkerchief, and as she did so the lid of her powder box lifted and the contents spilled out onto her hands. Soot! Her mind flashed back to tea time, when her sisters had been scraping the fire back and giggling helplessly. She held up the mirror again, watching the slow tears trickle through the rings of soot on her cheeks. The tram lurched to a halt and she clutched her bag, held on to her hat and clattered down the planks. She jumped off, ran blindly down a street and swung at last into the brightness of Victoria Station, straight into the arms of a young man. Hello, he said, steadying her. It's a chimney sweep. Tears of anger coursed down her cheeks. Leave me alone, she sobbed. I want the ladies' room. When she came out again, her cheeks red and shining from the scrubbing she'd given them and her hair hanging damply to her shoulders, the young man was waiting for her. He folded up his paper and walked across to her as she stood blinking in the station bustle. That's better, he said. I come here for my annual wash too. She waited, mortified. I'm not laughing at you, he went on. I was worried about you. That's why we waited. It was his stammer that disarmed her. When he offered her a coffee and a slice of cream cake at the corner house, she gratefully accepted, without a second thought for the young man she was supposed to be meeting, who wasn't so good-looking, 
and who must by now have hopelessly abandoned his vigil for her. With a guilty look round for her spying sisters, she accompanied him to the coffee shop. She watched him appreciatively as he talked. He was a bright young blade, with dark hair and moustache and brown lively eyes, and a stutter that every so often broke across his animated speech and belied his air of confidence charmingly. He wore a neat suit and spats and carried yellow kid gloves and a silver-topped cane. His style matched her own. But it didn't take them long to discover that they had little else in common. Bridie came from a large brood of Irish Catholics. Hundreds of us, she told him, squashed up together somehow in the tiny rooms of a terrace house in Solly Street. Her father kept a strict and vigorous watch on all his daughters. If any of you's girls get yourselves in trouble with the fellas, he would shout at any sign of coyer modesty. I'll break every bone in your body, so help me. Bridie knew he meant it. He and his wife paraded the girls across the road to church every Sunday and Holy Day, proud of their beauty and hostile to any unseemly glances. And it went without saying that they never even took the non-Catholic glances into consideration. They would marry the girls off to good Catholic boys of the parish, when the time came. Jack was the son of a headmaster. He lived along with his elderly parents in a fine, quiet house. His father always maintained there the dignity that his office as headmaster required. He kept secret the fact that his only surviving child was a great disappointment, as he was only of average intelligence and showed little interest in anything except his clothes and his motorbike. Jack's father consoled himself with his books and his music, leaving his wife to see to the boy, and she, thoughtful and sad since the loss of her first two boys in the Great War, anxiously watched him grow up. So long as he's happy, she always said to her husband, we must be thankful. They were a deeply religious couple, and if there was one thing they disliked, it was a Catholic. Jack walked Bridie back to her tram stop, knowing that he'd have to see her again. He pressed her hand warmly as her tram drew up. I will want to see you tomorrow, he blurted out. Where? The tram had stopped. Here? It, it'd have to be straight from work. She was climbing on. He wanted to ask what time that would be, but couldn't get the words out. Never mind, he thought. I'll wait for all night if I have to. She waved goodbye to him as the tram moaned off, but as it swayed through the dark streets, she realised that it was already way past her bedtime and that her father would be home. She hurried away from her tram stop, rounded her street, saw a triangle of light thrown across the cobbles, and knew that he was on the doorstep, waiting for her. What time do you call this, you little hussy? His voice echoed round the houses. Half past nine, Dad. She knew it was no use lying. Lying was as much of a sin as disobedience was. Get in that house and up them stairs to your bed. She dodged under his arm and ran across the room where her brother Will was preparing his bath in front of the fire, and her mother sat darning at the table. Up them stairs, roared her father as Bridie stopped at the dresser to break off a hunk of bread. And say your act of contrition. She scampered away from him up to her room, flung off her clothes in the darkness, and jumped into bed. Her father sat down at the table with his head in his hands. Never have daughters, Will.
he said. What do you suppose she's been up to till this time of night? Shenanigan, said Will, gloating from his bath. He was the only son. Aye, shenanigan of no doubt. The more worry than the worse girls are. What are we doing with so many daughters, Nancy, and all this worry they bring us? What's this nonsense? his wife said calmly. Who'd be keeping your house clean for you, with me helping you with the boots, if it wasn't for the girls? Who'd cook your meals? There was no answer to that. Upstairs, Bridie's sisters pretended to be asleep and squinted at her in the darkness, waiting for her abuse and their punishment. They hardly dared breathe. But Bridie had forgotten all about their trick with the soot. She snuggled down into her warm bedclothes, smiling at the thought of the dapper young man at Victoria Station, and was cosily snoring long before the sisters lying wide-eyed with suspense beside her. From then on, Bridie and Jack spent every spare minute together, but secretly. Jack dared himself to come as far as the end of a street for her, but no further. He had a motorbike, a huge eight-horsepower matchless. She grew used to the sound of it and would be there waiting for him long before he roared into view. When spring came, he took her into Derbyshire on it and was proud of the stir caused by his throaty engine and his striking passenger. Once they got hopelessly lost, frantically weaving in and out of country lanes with only the cows to watch them as the sky blackened and the stars burst through like flowers. At last they came across a procession of miners trudging their way to work. Wowie! shouted Jack, while beneath them the huge machine snorted and shook like a bull waiting to charge. Maltby, said one of them, winking at Bridie as he went past. Maltby! Can you find your way back now? Bridie shouted. If we've got enough petrol, I can, said Jack. I don't want to go back anyway, moaned Bridie. I'd rather be dead than in our house when my dad finds out. Grimly, Jack rode her home. She slipped off the bike right at the top of the street and, without even saying goodbye to him, ran like the wind to her house, as if saving a minute over these last few yards was going to save her from the beating she knew would be coming. Amazingly, though, her dad had come home that night too tight to drink to ask about the girls and had found his bed and stayed there. Bridie's mother was awake, though. She heard the bike in the distance listened out for running feet, crept downstairs, and pulled open the door just as Bridie reached it. She slapped the girl's face so hard that her own hands smarted the rest of the night. If you've done a sin, I'll turn you out of house and home, she hissed, slapping her again with the other hand. I haven't. Honest to God, I haven't. And it's Sunday be now. Do you know that? I'll be watching you when you go up for Holy Communion, me girl. I'll be watching you. Just before they'd reached Bridie's end of town, Jack had shouted to her, I'll come up tomorrow and explain everything to your parents. No, don't, she'd begged. But by the time Sunday Mass was over and done with, and her father had gone out for his Sunday pleasures, she was half hoping he would come, after all. She wanted her mother to know him. She told her sisters that he might come, and they waited upstairs, tense with excitement. Bridie, white-faced, stayed in the back room. She didn't want him to come. It was too late. Her father would be home soon. 
Why didn't he come now? When at last the throb of his engine was heard outside, she shuddered in horror. There was a shriek from upstairs. It's him! It's our bridey's young man! And she sat in the dark room, unable to move, while Jack knocked on the door and the girls clattered gaily downstairs. But it was her brother, Will, who opened the door to him and stood leaning on the door jamb, eyeing Jack laconically. Did you want something? His blue eyes were full of humour, watching the young man's nervousness. Jack looked past him at the five laughing girls. No sign of Bridie. Where was the girl? Out? His dreaded stammer returned. I is your b, -b bridey in? Well, what if she is? She she's expecting me. She's expecting Kukurka Christmas and all. Who is it, our Will? came a woman's voice, curious from inside. Just then, Bridie came from the back room. She was cold with nervousness. Hello, Jack, she said quietly. Won't you come in a minute? Will winked at his sisters, who flattened themselves against the wall to let Jack pass. He was wearing a sporting jacket with breeches and long woolen stockings, and the plump little woman busy at the stove stared at him in amazement. What's this creature? This is Mr. Holmum, a friend of mine. Bridie spoke slowly and coldly. He's come to explain why I was so late last night. Like the blazes he has. But Jack and his charm triumphed. He told her that he could see why she had six beautiful daughters and how much pleasure it had given him to show Bridie the Derbyshire that he'd always loved, and how he would take her, Mrs Rooney, she'd only to ask, he'd make sure she didn't fall off. And all the while Bridie was darting anxious glances at the clock and the mantelpiece, and little Anne was hopping inside and out to keep a watch out for her father. Would you like to have a look at it, Mrs Rooney? asked Jack. You'll see, it's as safe as houses. I would, she said, excited. She gave the potatoes a prod and slid them back into the fire oven, and the whole family followed Jack out into the road. The machine, like a beast at rest, lay waiting. Jack, confident, strode up to it while the girls crowded round him, and curtains on either side of the Roonies twitched. He glanced up and down the flat street. Not a good place to start. He ran the bike down to the end, with Annie and Peg running after, and back, red-faced, panting, and as he passed the house for the third time, the thing coughed and sputtered and burst into life. The crowd cheered. Come on, the bridey, he called. He flung himself across his bike, his belly over the saddle, and heaved himself into a sitting position, while the matchless roared and shivered beneath him. Bridie ran after him, jammed her hat down firmly on her head, hoisted up her skirt, and swung herself over the back of the machine. They came in a huge circle past the house with a roar of triumph, everyone shouting and waving, dust swirling round them and small stones flying, curved again in a magnificent swoop, lost control and careered in hiccups of screaming zigzags towards the house, missed it and came to rest, juddering and gasping, on the front step of next door but one. If that's you, Bridie Rooney, I'll break every bone in your body. 
Bridie and Jack struggle to get free, arms and legs flailing, shaking splinters of black front door off their clothing. They backed away from the angry figure bearing down on them from the end of the street. It's me dad! Bridie could hardly speak. Jack grabbed his hat in one hand and Bridie in the other, and they charged off in the other direction, with Bridie's father shouting and panting after them, and Peg and Annie and some dogs after him. And in the doorway stood Bridie's mother, dabbing her eyes with the corner of her pinny, and not knowing whether it was tears of laughter or of grief that she was wiping away. They sat, bumping together on the back seat of the tram, chasing each other's thoughts all the way to the terminus. You know what I want, don't you, Bridie? Jack said. It was hopeless, and he knew it. But the thing had to be said. I want to marry you. She didn't look at him. Will you turn? I couldn't be a Catholic. You know I couldn't. Then my father will never let us get married. The tram trundled them slowly down to the city. If Jack married her, he would never be forgiven. He knew that. It would be like an act of treachery to his parents. And his mother had lost two sons already. He loved her far too much to hurt her. They've always told me how wicked non-Catholics are, Bridie whispered. And here am I, in love with one. What am I doing? In love with a Protestant? It just happened, Jack consoled her. You couldn't help it. Bridie felt her cheeks burning as she slipped her hand into his. It wasn't to be stopped, this love. Yet there was a deep sadness between them like the weight of years. They sat in the tram watching the blue sparks flash, and still they said nothing. The tram brought them back to the stop near Bridie Street, they got off together. There's no answer, said Jack. There's nothing we can do. Unless we get married anyway, said Bridie, daring. And don't tell them, you mean. Tell them after. They couldn't do anything about it then. It's our lives. I don't mind marrying a Protestant. I don't mind marrying a Catholic, said Jack, surprised. They went slowly back to her street, still too deeply troubled to say more. She went into her own house and helped her mother to serve out the Sunday dinner, and her father held back his anger for once, watching her strange sadness. Jack left some money with the people whose front door he'd damaged, and wheeled his bike away. And a month later, they were married. It was in the middle of a working day for both of them. They had a meal out at the corner house at the end of the day, and then Jack went to his house, and Bridie went to hers. The room they were to rent fully furnished wasn't to be ready till the following week. They decided that they would leave the telling of the news till the last minute, when their room would be ready for them to escape to, and no one would be able to do anything about it. Bridie lay awake all night between her sisters watching the soft movement of the curtains at the open windows, afraid. Next day was Sunday, when she was to go to Mass with her family. She sat with her sister, Polly. It was cool and dark in the church. 
soft sunlight thrust through the coloured panes of the stained glass windows, jewelling the benches and the backs of the bent figures at prayer. The altar was bright with June flowers, and the air sweet with the scent of them and of the incense burning. She loved this church. The priest's murmured chant reminded her of the drone of insects busy in summer gardens. The rich and quiet ceremony of the Mass was as familiar to her as family rituals. It was part of her life. The congregation sat back for the sermon, and the priest, who had christened her and all her young relations, sought out her eyes and spoke only to her. Deny your God who loves you, he told her, and you will spend eternity in the everlasting flames of hell. His words burned into every pore of her flesh. And one moment of hell is the span of your entire lifetime, he reminded her, just her, his voice like a spider in the crack of her ear, creeping down through all the mysterious veins and cells and sinews of her body to enter the pale, cloudy substance somewhere underneath her bones, which was where she felt her soul to be. And every moment that it is as long as a lifetime is as tiny as one grain of sand dropped among all the grains of sand on the shores of infinity. And there will be no counting of them, for these shores are without end, without end. There was a coughing and shuffling of feet as he left the pulpit. Her mother and sister stood up around her for the singing of the creed, and Bridie leaned forward, letting the sweet, quavering voices drench her. She felt Polly kneeling down to her. Bridie, Bridie. Polly, she whispered back. I married Jack yesterday. That's wonderful, said Polly. Won't you stand up, Bridie, and sing? That's wonderful. After Mass, when Mr. Rooney had gone for his drink, Polly made Bridie tell her mother. After all, Mrs. Rooney wasn't all that surprised. She knew love when she saw it. She was disappointed, though. I love weddings, she said. I've been planning yours for years, and here am I, not even invited. Perhaps we'll have another wedding in the church, said Bridie wistfully. She'd have the choir and her little sisters all in pale dresses and the blessing of the priest. Well, that would be better than nothing, said Mrs Rooney. Could you not have found a good Catholic boy in the first place, though, from the parish and saved all this messing? Mother, you've seen what they're like. Her mother nodded. There hadn't been much choice in her day, either. Ah, oh, we've never had a convert in the family before, she sighed. But I suppose it'll just have to do. Mother, you don't understand, gasped Bridie. Jack can't turn Catholic. What's this? Can't? Mrs Rooney closed her eyes against this terrible news. Won't, then, said Bridie. She'd rather face the priest in the confessional than break this to her mother. Jack'll never be a Catholic mother. It'd be lying to himself if he did. Somebody's got to lie, Mrs Rooney moaned. 
Who's going to tell your father this news? I'm not. I can't tell lies, Mother. It's a sin. Bridie was cold to the bone. So's your marriage a sin, Bridie Rooney. Don't you know that? In the eyes of the church, you're not married at all. And there's no marrying that Protestant of the Sacred Heart, ever. And where is the man, anyway? What kind of a husband is he, leaving you to sort this mess out all by yourself? What kind of a marriage you call this, for goodness sake? Jack was at home, brooding. He didn't know how to begin to tell his mother that he'd married a Catholic. Yet he couldn't bring himself to see Bridie again until he had told his mother, until he'd made it all right with her. Then he toyed with the idea of waiting till the time came for him to take his furnished room and just telling his mother he was moving in with a pal from work. Even that would hurt her. He sat by the fireside two nights after his wedding, prodding and prodding the coals to make them spurt, knowing nothing of what he was doing but aware that his mother's sad eyes were fixed on him and that he couldn't meet them. What's up with you, Jack? she said to him at last. Nothing, Ma. Leave me alone. He cracked a coal open so the flames burst through. Shadows flung frenzied arms across the walls and ceiling. His eyes were set deep into his face, in pockets of darkness. He'd never kept anything from her before. It would break her heart if I told her, he thought to himself, while she watched him. But what am I doing, sitting here night after night, when I have a young wife waiting for me? He flung the poker down and ran out. It rolled backwards and forwards on the hearth, backwards and forwards, till at last Jack's mother picked it up and stood it in its holder and went over to the window. She watched him, sorrowing for him, as he revved his motorbike up in the yard. Where's the boy gone at this time of night? her husband called, annoyed from his study. He's not a boy, she said. He's a grown man, Joseph. And he's sick with worry. Bridie was in bed when Jack arrived. He didn't know whether she slept in the front or the back of the house, so had no way of warning her. He banged on the door, and Mr Rooney opened it to him. What's up? he asked not knowing Jack. Oh, I've come for b, -b bridey What do you mean you've come for bloody bridey The whole house is awake with a man shouting. Jack saw her on the stairs and she gave him strength. She's my wife. He couldn't help smiling in spite of his terror, nor could she. Mr Rooney turned round and pulled bridey down to the door. Is this true? Yes, father she whispered. We were married Saturday. Mr Rooney stared at her, doubt and astonishment and rage chasing each other across his face. A surge of nostalgia swelled up in him. Nothing was dearer to him than romance. How old are you, Bridie? he asked his daughter. Twenty-one. You're a child yet, for all that, he said softly. You must take care of her, young man. He pushed Bridie out onto the doorstep and shut the door before the moisture in his eyes betrayed him. But father, 
said Bridie, hammering on the door. I'm still in my nighty. You've made your bed, my girl, he said roughly, pushing to the bolts on the other side. Now you must lie on it. Now what do we do? asked Bridie. We go and tell my parents, said Jack. Together, we should have done it in the first place. We've done it all wrong. He took off his jacket and put it round her shoulders, and after a bit of revving and kicking and running up and down the street, he got the matchless started, and they set off on the long ride to his parents' house. Bridie snuggled against his back and closed her eyes. He grinned. Happy? he shouted. She nodded and smiled cosily, even though she knew he couldn't see her doing it. He started singing with the wind gasping into his breath and his voice jerking with every rut and stone on the road. Me and Bridie, on a motorbike made for two. And Bridie started laughing, shouting with laughing. And they knew that nothing as terrible and as wonderful as this would ever happen to them again. Jack's mother heard them coming. Joseph, she called. He's back. She opened the door to them and she and her husband stood in the polished hallway in silence as Bridie and Jack came in, hand in hand, their singing and their laughter quite gone. This is Bridie, Jack said, looking at his father. She is a Catholic and she is my wife. Bridie had oil on her nightie. Her hands and her cheeks were red with the wind and her hair was in a terrible state. Jack's father went back into the drawing room, where they heard him putting his books away on their shelves. You can't stay here, said Jack's mother to Bridie. I'm sorry. The three stood, saying nothing. Never before had Jack been so aware of the hall clock's loud tick. I've nothing else to wear, said Bridie. Of course. Come up to my room. I'll find you something. Neither of the women looked at each other. Bridie followed Jack's mother up the polished stairs. We've nowhere to go, said Jack when his mother came down again. We've a furnished room, but it's not ours till Saturday. You have a good home here, she reminded him. She joined her husband in the drawing room. More sad than angry, Jack went upstairs and stuffed some clothes into his small knapsack. He'd no idea what they would do. He came out of his room again when he heard Bridie going downstairs. She was wearing one of his mother's best suits, a very expensive one in pale blue silk. He knew his mother would have asked her to wear it. You look lovely, he said, helpless. They stood in the doorway as Jack's parents came out of the drawing room together. The old man's voice was steady and polite. There can be no question of your living here together, he said. I regret your action, Jack. However, I acknowledge that you are now man and wife. He was unable to continue, but handed Jack a wallet of money. Conscience money! Bridie had a mother's temper. Jack put his hand on her arm. He knew what it had cost his parents to do this. You'll find an hotel, his mother said, and you'll be able to have a honeymoon. We'd both like that for you. 
and when you return, you'll have your own home to go to, and that is best. They didn't see them out, though they listened to the sound of Jack's bike as it roared off down the drive away from their house and off along the road that led to Derbyshire. And for a long time after the sound of it had died away, they still imagined they could hear it and didn't speak. And we called our first daughter Josephine. After me pa, Grandpa Jack said. She sorted him out all right. He thought the world of you, Josie. My mum moved across so she was sitting next to him. Well, said Granny Dorothy, it wasn't like that for me. I didn't have a mother to tell me I could or I couldn't. My dad were too busy working in that to think much about what I were up to. And Albert was the boy next door, or as good as. But I was like you, Jess. I was a bit of a dreamer, you see. I wanted a handsome prince. Mm -hmm.